social media. If you're listening to this podcast and you have a uterus, you probably will have fibroids sometime in your life. 80% of Black women will have fibroids by the age of 50. Hey, and welcome to the Millennial Health Podcast. I'm Dr. J. Cherie Allen, a board-certified family physician who's passionate about the health of my fellow millennials. I know we're booked and busy, but your first wealth is your health. So I'm taking some of my most important health messages and bringing them here to you on this podcast. My goal is to share some valuable information and draw awareness to some important health topics, but I encourage you to please consult your physician for personalized medical advice. Today on the Millennial Health Podcast, we are joined by Dr. Ruth Arumala. She's a board-certified gynecologist and international women's health advocate. She specializes in medical and surgical management of fibroids, polycystic ovarian syndrome, sexual dysfunction, and menopause. She's passionate about empowering women to live a healthier and more fulfilling life. We have a wonderful conversation on fibroids. We talk about symptoms, treatment options, and why we aren't having these conversations about such a prevalent health condition in our families and social circles. Enjoy the conversation. So joining us today on the Millennial Health Podcast is Dr. Arumala. Dr. Arumala or Ruthie, welcome. (laughs) I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to have this conversation with you. So I told you before, I'm a huge fan. I love some of the things you talk about on social media. I especially love your honesty and your vulnerability, um, not only about issues that you see in your practice, but also personally. And I think that speaks to a lot of the experiences that many of us have. And as a Black woman who relates to one of the big issues you recently spoke about, fibroids, I wanted us to bring this conversation to the podcast. So before we jump in, though, can you tell us a little about your journey to becoming an OBGYN and kind of how you even got to this space? So actually, in medical school, I wanted to be a dermatologist. I went to medical school to make people pretty, not to save lives. And I say that with all honesty, because the only doctor I really had was a dermatologist. I had horrific skin. Um, no real skin, just pimples. And um, so I always was around my dermatologist and I saw how much he changed my life. He was a older white man. And he told me, he was like, you know, you can do this too. So I went into medical school really thinking that was what I was going to do. And so as I went through my journey, I was 24 and my twin brother passed away. And when he passed away, he was in law school The last conversation we ever had was a drive back from my parents' house. So our tradition was we spent um, Christmas with our parents and New Year's with our friends. So in between Christmas and New Year, we were driving back 
um, to, he used to go with me from Maryland to New Jersey. I was in med school in New Jersey. And then he will take the train into New York where he was in law school. And during that drive, he, we talked about legacy. And imagine two 24-year-olds, bright-eyed, talking about legacy. He talked about leaving a legacy. That was our last like real conversation. And he passed away on January 2nd. So um, at that point, I had to really sit down and think, do I want to be a dermatologist? What do I really want to do? Like it went from being an egocentric push towards what I wanted to do with my life and how could I change the world? Around the same time, I took a year off to do dermatology research in Botswana. And so I had a little bit more time to think about what I wanted to do with my life. And I realized that Black women have fibroids. First time I ever heard of fibroids, I was already a second year medical student. I had finished my second year. I was in between, actually, I finished my third year. And I was in between third and fourth year of med school. And I didn't really know what a fibroid was, right? And so... I found out that Nigerians had the top, you know, I'm Nigerian and had the most fibroids in the world. Um, I found out that Ghanaians had the second most fibroids in the world. Ethiopians had the third most fibroids. I'm like, oh, these are all black women. And that this stopped them from getting pregnant. At the same time, one of my mentors was the reproductive endocrinologist. So I reached out to him and I said, hey, I'm really interested in helping with fibroids. And he was like, you're going to be an REI. You're going to be a reproductive endocrinologist. And this is how you do it. You become an OBGYN. So I did not go into OBGYN to deliver babies. I went into OBGYN as a stepping stone to become a fertility specialist. And I was going to be a fibroid specialist. Fast forward, residency really killed me. Like I was tired and broke and tired of being broke. So I decided that I was going to stop at that point. But I spoke to another one of my mentors, and this speaks to how important mentorship is. Another one of my mentors, also a white guy who sat at me down and told me, something you can do is you can teach yourself how to do fibroid surgery. Mm. You don't have to do a fellowship. You can really just immerse yourself in this. So when I finished residency, I went and spent a year about more like nine months in Oklahoma, just doing GYN surgery. And then I opened my practice after that. And that's sort of where I got to, you know, uh, I will put this plug in. I'm forever going to be a fibroid specialist, but I will be starting a, a fellowship in cosmetic surgery. Mm-hmm. And at some other point, we can talk about that one other day, but this <laughs> is about fibroids, which is my passion. So that's how I came to where I am. Um, just closed my practice after having it for a little over two years. Um, and it was a boutique style practice that specialized in more GYN. And we did have some pregnant women, but we really specialized in GYN, the medical and surgical management of fibroids, PCOS, sexual dysfunction, and menopause. Ah, okay. Okay. Congratulations to you, by the way, on this new step that you are about to embark on. (laughs) That's definitely another conversation. Pivoting, especially as a millennial, is a huge, huge topic. But I wanted to backtrack a little. So one of my goals with starting the Millennial Health Podcast, you know, I'm a family medicine physician. So primary care, people kind of walk into clinic and it's like, doc, this, 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 you know, is wrong. What is my diagnosis or what should I do about it? And I oftentimes have conversations with patients that I wish I could share with others because I know other people have the same sort of questions. 
So I use this podcast as a platform to share information that I think is really relevant beyond just the four walls of the clinic. So I want us to do that really quickly with fibroids. So as a fibroid specialist, what do you think are some of the um, key uh, pieces of information regarding this condition that if you had a megaphone and you could have a conversation with the majority of millennials, especially Black women out there in the world, what would you want them to know about this condition? I would want you to know that if you're listening to this podcast and you have a uterus, you probably will have fibroids sometime in your life. 80% of Black women will have fibroids by the age of 50, but not all fibroids are pathological. They're not normal, but they're not necessarily pathological. So I will take a step back and talk about what are fibroids. See, the uterus itself or the womb has three layers of tissue. It has a skin on the outside, it has a lining on the inside, and it has muscle in between. And a fibroid is when a muscle cell, which is sandwiched in between, decides that it's not going to do what nature says. Nature says in general, grow, reproduce, and die. Fibroid cells say, hell no, I'm going to grow, reproduce, and grow, and reproduce, and grow, and reproduce. And it creates a ball of muscle tissue around the capsule, and it starts to create, you know, get its own blood supply and so that it can continue to feed itself. So it's just a ball of muscle. But what that can lead to is that if it invaginates into the lining of the uterus or the cavity of the uterus where a baby would lie, it can cause heavy bleeding because it's not normal tissue that's shedding off with your menstrual cycle. It's now being hindered by the fibroid tissue being there. It can also cause when a sperm is trying to swim up in through the cervix, goes in through the vagina, in through the cervix, is trying to go up to the fallopian tube, it might not be able to find the fallopian tube because there's a big obstacle there. Or if it does manage to get to the fallopian tubes and it manages to find an egg and fertilize, well, when the egg comes right back into the uterus to try to implant, it might not find place to implant that's normal tissue. So that's how it causes what we call subfertility because a lot of women can get pregnant with fibroids, but it reduces the chances because of these two obstructions. Mm-hmm. Or if it's in the middle of the uterus, when you, are, you have your periods, the way that you stop bleeding is that the muscle tissue kind of contracts and relaxes and contracts. Well, if there's a big ball of tissue there, it can't contract and relax. So you have a lot of pain with your periods. Or if it's in the front of the uterus, it can cause you to have frequency of urination because the bladder lies right in front of the uterus. So the bladder gets compressed and it's not able to fill to its maximum capacity. So you end up peeing more often because you're not filling completely. Mm -hmm. Or if it lays in the back of the uterus, it can cause you to have um, constipation because the sigmoid colon or the intestines are there. And so the poop is not able to flow easily. And sometimes you can have constipation and diarrhea cycles because you have the constipation when there's the fibroid in the way. And once it gets past that, it becomes diarrhea, okay? And then lastly, it can cause you to have a big protruded thing there. And that will cause your abdomen to look like you're pregnant all the time. 
or you just finish eating all the time and you're trying to lose weight and you're able to lose weight, but all over your, your arms get skinny, your legs get skinny, but then you have this big belly or you try to have intercourse and every time the uterus moves, well, there's a big hunk of tissue there and you end up having pain with your periods. So those are what fibroids do. They don't go anywhere and cause issues like cancer, but they are not necessarily always benign because they just sit there and cause these issues. Mm-hmm. Well, what are some of our options then or what should someone do once they recognize, oh, this might be something I'm struggling with, you know? So I think, first of all, you have to take a step back and make sure that every woman should be tracking your periods. Your periods are vital signs. So if they become abnormal, they become really painful, they become really heavy, you're bleeding more than seven days a a month, you need to talk to your doctor. Number one, they sh- you shouldn't be changing your pads less than two hours. So if you're changing your pads less than two hours, you're either not using the right size of pad or you have fibroids, you have, or you have polyps, or you have adenomyosis, you have something wrong with the uterus. So that's the first thing. And then when you go to your doctor, they will diagnose you with fibroids, and that's a whole long thing. Once you get diagnosed with fibroids, there are several ways we can go about it. Not all fibroids need to be treated, but all fibroids need to be surveyed, or you need to have a pelvic exam every single year and an annual ultrasound. That way we can know if the fibroids are growing fast and you need intervention before they're so big that you need your uterus out, right? That's one thing. And in addition to that, there is a type of cancer that mimics fibroids, but it grows very, very fast. So if you're having an annual ultrasound and we see that it is outgrowing the normal growth pattern of a fibroid, then we could do something earlier. The next thing is we can use medications to treat the symptoms of fibroids. The biggest medication that we use are actually NSAIDs, which are naproxen, which is Aleve, or ibuprofen, which is Motrin or Advil. And so we can use that. And that can actually not just work with pain, it can actually reduce the flow of blood by up to 30%. Mm-hmm. There's another medication called tranexamic acid. We can use that, okay? And then there are some medications that are newer. One of them is called Orion. It was released in 2019 by AbbVie. And there's a new medication that just came out called Myfembre. It literally came out in 2021, and it's made by Myovent. And both of those work at the level of the brain to turn down the um, response to one of the hormones that the brain makes that starts your cycle, basically, uh, or the, the response of the ovary. And so those medications are useful. There is another medication that's similar to that that is an injection. That's called Lupron. Lupron um, only is used in short period of time. And what we usually use it for is to shrink a fibroid so that we can do a smaller surgery instead of a bigger surgery. The side effects of Lupron are really, really crazy. Then there is, of course, birth control. Birth control in any kind of form is really used to target bleeding. So that's really what it targets. And then there are lots of procedures 
Some of the procedures are similar in their how they work. There's a procedure called Sonata, another one called Assessin. And both of those use radio frequency to actually inject into the fibroid and shrink the fibroid. And those are procedures that are done under anesthesia, um, but the recovery is really, really fast. Okay. And you still have your uterus, you still have your fibroids, you're just treating the fibroids. Another treatment for the fibroid is a uterine artery embolization. That is done by radiologists or interventional radiologists, and they access your blood vessels using large blood vessels from your wrist or your groin, depending on the, the radiologist. And they tend to inject um, small polymers to the actual blood vessels that feed the fibroid so the fibroid can't grow. Lastly, there is a removal of the fibroid using that's called a myomectomy. There are many routes to do that or the removal of the uterus itself, which is the last resort. And that is called a hysterectomy and there are many routes. There is one particular procedure that I haven't mentioned because it's not a treatment for fibroids, it's a treatment for abnormal bleeding. Mm -hmm. And that's an endometrial ablation. That's the ablation of the lining of the uterus. And that can be done in many ways. Mm -hmm. There are some experimental um, treatments for fibroids using freezing that's been done in European countries, but not necessarily in the US. Yeah. And there's no FDA approved method. Mm, okay. Thank you so much for sharing all of those options. I think one of the things as millennials, many of us are concerned about preserving our fertility. So the concern I hear a lot is, you know, is this treatment option going to impact my future fertility? The obvious one, hysterectomy is off the table, but what are the ones that are more suitable for women who do desire children? to so, bear their own children. So even just medication is definitely an option. The second is the myomectomy or the actual removal of the fibroid. The FDA has not approved any of the radiofrequency or the uterine artery embolization for fertility. However, there's a lot of case reports that show that women can be fertile after those procedures. There are many patients that we have to do that because they've had one, two, three myomectomies, and each myomectomy carries a lot of um, consequences for the future myomectomy because a myomectomy is, myoma is another name for a fibroid. Ectomy is, means removal of. So it is a removal of the fibroid, but when you remove a fibroid, there's a big gaping hole. So as a surgeon, I reconstruct the uterus. But whenever you reconstruct a uterus, scar tissue is never as strong as tissue that was there before. So you can imagine each time you basically are making the uterine walls or the muscle of the uterus less strong each time. So after two, three, four, sometimes we just say, you might want to try one of these other procedures. And some of those women still get pregnant. I do have colleagues who do offer those other alternative treatments and they're called uterine sparing treatments because they don't take out the uterus itself. Mm -hmm. And they do 
go against FDA because sometimes FDA approval just means that we haven't actually laid out the data long enough to show, but they can see in their practice that their patients are getting pregnant because getting pregnant really doesn't matter. They're carrying the baby to term. They're having successful low-risk pregnancies. And so those providers tend to offer these other treatments. I must tell you that I'm a little bit conservative, so I haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) Totally, totally understandable. So one of the uh, things you started off by telling us is you first learned about uh, fibroids when you were in Botswana. And you mentioned some of the statistics and how this impacts Black women. You know, I think one of the things that, I don't know if it's unique to our culture or what it is, but one of the things I'm hoping to do with this podcast is opening up a conversation about some of these things that we don't typically talk about. You know, um. I am currently pregnant and I have fibroids. And initially we thought it was an issue with getting pregnant, um, but it has grown so much during my pregnancy that I started having issues in the pregnancy because of the fibroids. This was news to me on a personal level, you know, I'm not as a physician, I've heard of this, that sort of thing, but it didn't hit home for me. And when I mentioned it to some family, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you have so and so in the family also had that. I'm like, no one ever spoke about this. <laughs> no one ever brought that up. How can we start to break down some of these walls within our families and culturally to have conversations about issues like this that impact our health before it's kind of staring us in the face? I think that's a really loaded question. It's a question that I'm trying to figure out. My job as a fibroid specialist is to continue to have these conversations. I've had some backlash, Hmm. right? You would think somebody would recognize that I'm a gynecologist, but I've had a lot of backlash because in in all black cultures, all across the diaspora, it's almost felt weak to talk about your health issues, number one, mm-hmm. and then your uterus and your fertility. Oh no, you're not going to be marketable to suitors and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. And I feel like it's it's about time that we start talking about it because so many of us have been affected by fibroids. The difference is that the generation before us had babies earlier. So they already had their babies and then they got into their thirties and their mid thirties and their late thirties. And then they ended up having a hysterectomy and no one cared because they already had their babies. Right. Mm -hmm. And so here we are, and actually, let's not say no one cares, because being a menopause specialist also, I'm taking care of those women who had their hysterectomies at 38, who are 42 and are miserable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we have to talk about how this really affects us. I used to think that the uterus wasn't just another organ. What's the big deal? You're done with your babies and let's do a hysterectomy, no problem. But the way that I see it now, I mean, we wouldn't tell a guy you're done with your having your babies. Let's take your scrotum. Mm-hmm. Let's just let's just take it. It's, it's fine. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that it's really great that at this time there's a lot of research as to how to remove fibroids or treat fibroids without destroying the uterus. And I think that's the way we have to go. 
to go. But in terms of conversations, I think as our, our generation just has to keep talking about stuff, being open about stuff. And as physicians, we are leaders in this sense, right? Mm-hmm. We need to talk about it. I had no problem. People were like, you're so vulnerable talking about your fibroids. I said, absolutely not. I'm not vulnerable at all. I'm just telling you the truth of what happened to me. There are women that, you know, go through social media and like um, do their entire makeup. I feel they're vulnerable, right? They start with bare face and then now they transform themselves to these goddesses. But that's what they do and that's their calling. So it's not vulnerable to them. Mm-hmm. Maybe talking about fibroids would be vulnerable to them. For me, this is my calling. This is what I do. It's not mm-hmm. vulnerable to me. I would actually feel like a hypocrite if I didn't. Mm, okay. Can I also say, I applaud you so much for so many things, but you also had a wonderful conversation about freezing your eggs too, preserving your fertility, which is incredible. I love the way you framed it, by the way. Nobody's son can. <laughs> yeah, nobody's dusty son because I almost got married last year and probably I would have ran into the biggest disaster of my life and made the worst decision of my life because I thought, you know, I've been with this person for all of my thirties. I hoped that I would get married to him because I had been with him for all of that. And I was willing to make that because I didn't want to start over. Mm-hmm. And when I made the decision that I was going to freeze my eggs, I felt free mm-hmm. and I am free and I don't want to boast but I can give every any 24-year-old a one for their money the way I look, okay? So uh, I work really hard at it. So I decided that I was going to freeze my eggs and wait till the point where I met the right person for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to be a mother more than I want to be a wife. It's kind of harsh to say. I want to be a mother more than I want to be a wife. And I wanted to make sure that I had that opportunity and I have PCOS, I should also say mm-hmm. that, which I, I talk about all my stuff. And I think God gave me this stuff so I can talk about it. But <laughs> because of that, I had so many eggs. Mm. So I ended up having one cycle, getting 81 eggs in one cycle, which is unheard of. Because most people have an average of like three, four, eight, twelve, eighty-one. 81. That's a lot. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm so happy that we're at this point that we can have these conversations talk about ways that really promote our freedom in many, many ways. You know, one of the recent episodes we just did on the podcast was talking about millennials desiring marriage. And we touched on some of the topics you just brought up right there, you know, looking for the right person, kind of heeding the warning signs and being brave enough to say this isn't it. You know, this is absolutely not it for me. So I can pivot and turn around. <laughs> yes. yes you know, our mothers did not have that opportunity because they didn't have the financial freedom that we do. Mm-hmm. I think it's a slap in the face to my grandmothers who made the sacrifices that they did, to my mother who made the sacrifice that she did. If I made a poor choice, because I do have the financial freedom. Mm-hmm. And so I want my daughter to look at me and say, my mother chose the right man that I could have as my hero, mm-hmm. right? Because I look at my father, that's my hero. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the same for my daughter. Oh, wow. That's amazing. 
Dr. Arumala, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Can I just ask one last question as we uh, wrap up? I love the way you have managed to leverage your social media presence. Someone else I love on the internet. I went to medical school with her, uh, Tosin. Um, she talks about her corner of the internet. <laughs> so I think of your corner of the internet. You know, you balance that so well with sharing information that's really important, that is clinically accurate, right? Because not all the information out there, as we as physicians know, sometimes we see some things and we like shake our heads. We're like, what is this, right? You've also managed to do that in a very engaging, almost like entertaining way that people keep coming back to see what you have to say, what your take is on a particular topic. So what advice do you have for other clinicians or actually just other millennials, young professionals who want to share, you know, information out there that is relevant, that is accurate, that is timely to help empower their own audiences? So I do social media as it will always be a hobby for me. A lot of people look at my social media and think it's like planned and curated. It is not <laughs> it's exactly what like my life and what I want to share. But I think that what really is first knowing who you are, what, what your brand is, you're not talking to everybody. I'm, I'm talking to black women. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to my friends. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage people to know who exactly their audience is. You can't try to reach everybody. Mm -hmm. And if you're changing one life, I used to say that if I'm talking to one person, that's all that matters. I never cared about likes. I never cared about follows. I never cared about that. I always cared about who that one person I was talking to. And that person almost always is me. (laughs) I'm almost always talking to myself. (laughs) And then I just happen to have a lot of people that are like me that get the advice, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is If you decide that you want to use social media as a platform, be yourself on it. Don't try to be like anyone else because there's just one of you and you have a unique voice and you have something you have to share with the world. And so that it would be, you know, the second advice. And then the third advice is be consistent. Not saying you have to post every day, not saying you have to post every week, but don't expect to be gone for, you know, two months. And then everybody's going to like and share and do whatever they do. You know, I'll tell you a secret. I don't use hashtag. I don't do any of the social media things. I just post and I just post what I want to post. And the reason why I do that is because I want to keep reminding myself that I'm not doing this for likes, comments, shares. What I'm doing this for is I'm talking to myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's my, I know everybody's going to give a different advice, you know, but that's just what I do. But I show up every day, almost every day. I mean, sometimes I'm like, I can't deal with this today. I don't want to get <laughs> any information coming in. I don't want to give any information because the truth of the matter is every single time you help a patient, you give a speech, you speak on a podcast, you're literally giving a labor of love. So you are giving of yourself and sometimes you have to fill yourself back up. And so I realized that very early because I would tell my mom, I only saw five patients today when I was starting my practice, but I feel really, really tired. 
Mm-hmm. And my mom would be like, because you only have five patients, you spend so much time with them. You end up giving so much of yourself. I ended up learning so much of them and taking on their burden. Yes. Yeah. And so emotionally, that's something we don't right. talk about a lot is the emotional toll that being a physician or being a healthcare provider in general takes on you. Oh, trust me. <laughs> that's a huge conversation. Yeah. That's a huge conversation. Um, but where can our audience find you? So new people who are hearing you for the first time who would love to follow you and soak up some of this awesome information that you share so often. So um, my biggest platform is my Instagram. It is i.am.dr.arumala. And then I have a website, www.drarumala.com, A-R-U-M-A-L-A.com. And I have a TikTok that I'm also really active on that's the same, drarumala. And uh, I should share, I also have a podcast called The Pretty in Pink Podcast, The Modern Woman's Guide to Health, and so much more. So we talk about everything on there. And it's also a guest-based podcast, and that is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. I have a fibroid book coming out. It's The Modern Woman's Guide to Fibroids. It's literally like me chatting with my friends. (laughs) So um, that should be coming soon in the fourth quarter of 2021. Oh, awesome. Thank you. So and you heard that. Much. I've never actually heard that out loud. So, oh, so, hey, you heard it here first. Heard it here first. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today on the Millennial Health Podcast. Though my goal is to share some valuable information and draw awareness to some important health issues, I encourage you to please consult your physician for personalized medical advice. I hope this information was beneficial to you. And if so, please subscribe to the Millennial Health Podcast and share with your friends. Please also leave us a review. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out on Instagram or Twitter at Dr. J. Sheree, D-R-J-A-Y-S-H-E-R-E-E. The Carry On Friends podcast is produced by Breadfruit Media and new episodes are available every other Tuesday morning. You can listen to the podcast on the website carryonfriends.com or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, iTunes or wherever you like to listen to your podcast. Mm-hmm.